Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Chilling Tales for Dark Nights. Want to make sure you never miss a Chilling Tales for Dark Nights video again? Be sure to subscribe and hit that bell to turn on notifications. It's time to turn off the lights and turn on the dark. Good evening, listener. You're listening to Chilling Tales for Dark Nights. On tonight's program, we invite you to leave behind your safe reality and descend with us into the frightening depths of the most terrifying imaginations with audio adaptations of two rounds of frightening fiction about intense interrogations and tiny terrors. Also, both of tonight's tales are Chilling Tales exclusives, meaning you won't have heard them anywhere else. I'm your host, Steve Taylor, and tonight I'll be your guide as we traverse the dimly lit corridors of your darkest dreams. Joining us tonight to help bring to life the frightening fiction of T.W. Grimm and M.M. Kelly are voice talents Jason Hill, Melissa Medina, Justine Anastasia, Paul J. McSorley, and Nick Goroff. Now, get your ticket ready. Take your seat in our theater of the minds and brace yourself. It's time to turn off the lights and turn on the dark.
Our first tale tonight comes to us from author T.W. Grimm and is performed by Chilling Tales for Dark Knight voice talents Jason Hill, Melissa Medina, Justine Anastasia, and Paul J. McSorley. In it, we have a front row seat to an internal investigation about an incident where three people went missing and a fourth was found dead in his home. Without further ado, I present to you, Venus is Falling. The following is a faithful reenactment that is based on a series of audio tape recordings, transcriptions of radio communications, and a copy of an uncensored police report I obtained from a source that, for reasons of personal safety, must remain anonymous. I've also included excerpts from an emotionally charged interview with the widow of a man who witnessed the events in question. The existence of these recordings and transcripts has been officially and repeatedly denied by the National Park Service, the FBI, local law enforcement, and a number of officials representing the U.S. military. However, despite the official stance that the incident was an elaborate hoax, the audio recorded that night by park ranger Matthew Golding was leaked by an unidentified source in the fall of 2010, along with the radio transcripts and the police report. The forbidden files were uploaded to an infamous website known for hosting controversial material. The illicit materials disappeared from the site in short order, but they have periodically resurfaced on other file-sharing websites over the years. If one is persistent enough, it is possible to find them. But if you do, be prepared to spend the rest of your life looking over your shoulder. People who obtain these files have a tendency to disappear. In the interest of staying both alive and well, I have chosen to omit the name of the national park where the incident occurred. I also took the liberty of altering both the names and exact ages of all parties involved. The location will be referred to as X National Park, and the witnesses shall be named as follows. Matthew Golding, 31, a National Park Service forest ranger and law enforcement officer. Jillian Bridgemore, 36, an NPS ranger, law enforcement officer, and a respected authority in wildland fire suppression. Nicholas Fazio, 53, a trusted volunteer who was manning the radio at the base of operations that evening. Maria Fazio, 48, a laborer at a local manufacturing facility and the wife of Nicholas Fazio. And Louis Delacroix, 42, a veteran fire lookout who was serving his 20th season in the watchtower. Three people went missing that night, never to be seen again, and a fourth was found dead in his home only three days later. Maria Fazio discovered the body of her husband slumped over the kitchen table, his hand still wrapped around his coffee mug as his blood soaked into the morning newspaper. He had been shot in the back of the head with a 40 caliber firearm. The coroner initially stated that his death was a homicide, but the ruling was quickly changed to suicide by a self-inflicted gunshot wound. 
Maria Fazio was adamant that her husband had never owned a handgun. According to the uncensored police report, no weapon was found at the scene. So, who murdered Nicholas Fazio, and why was his murder covered up by the police? I've never seen anything like it. They're... Answer to them. To get out of there. But my compass was spinning in circles. I saw them floating over the treetops. Screaming. Dinky, I saw them screaming in the light. Calm down, Lou. Listen, we're gonna get you out of there. We're gonna, um... Just tell me again where... Holy God, they're coming. Look to the southeast, do you see it? It's just gliding over the treetops like... Oh, do you see it? Hey, what... Lewis, what is that? I can see... Uh, I can see... There's... And now it's changing colors. It's... I lost sight of it. What do you see on your end? What's happening? They're coming for me. Oh, I'm scared, Nikki. You've got a shotgun in there. Use it if you have to, Lou. Don't think twice about it. They don't care about no shotgun. They... Before they get me. I'm telling you right now, I will blow my goddamn head off. My husband didn't own a gun. I would never allow one in the house. Even if he did have a gun, how could he shoot himself like that twice in the back of the head? Yet they left that part out. He was shot twice, not once. He couldn't have done that to himself. Didn't make any sense. After the ruling came out, I hounded them every damn day. Every day, I would call them no word of a lie every single day. I would go down there in person sometimes, and I'd demand they reopen the investigation. I mean, I even started calling the office of the governor. I wrote him letters. You know what they said to me? They said, stop calling. It isn't going to bring him back. Yeah, I want everyone to know they said that to me. The office of the governor said that to a grieving widow. Make sure that gets in there. I will. Maria, why do you think they changed the cause of death in the coroner's report? They were scared. Everyone I talked to, they sounded like they were afraid. I could hear it in their voices, so I stopped calling them. And there was no point. No one was going to tell me the truth. And if they did, they'd end up like Nick. They'd be killed. Shortly after 9 p.m. on a clear night in August of 2006, veteran fire lookout Louis Delacroix radioed the base of operations with a startling observation. An unidentified flying object had dropped from the darkening skies and landed in the woods roughly a mile north of the watchtower. You really didn't see it? Touched down about three miles southeast of you, about a mile north of the tower. You didn't see nothing at all? Negative. I didn't see anything unusual to the southeast. Was it a meteor? You know, a shooting star or something like that? No. Wasn't no meteor. I've seen a few meteors over the years and it wasn't like that. It didn't streak across the sky and it wasn't fast. It came down in a slow, controlled descent. Nice and steady. I watched it fly parallel to the treetops, cruising along at a, I don't know, maybe 20 miles an hour, and it dropped out of sight. I don't know, it wasn't a flare and it weren't a parachute. I don't know what to tell you. <laughs> I couldn't identify it. 
That's really weird. You're telling me? I have never seen anything like that before. And I've been watching the skies for 20 years. Can you maybe send someone out here? I'll get a hold of Matt and Jillian. Well, I don't know, Nikki. I think we got ourselves a UFO out here. I've never seen anything like that before in my entire life. <laughs> what do you mean, like a flying saucer or something? Come on, you can't be serious. I saw what I saw. I don't know what to say. I'm a little freaked out, Nikki. Tell him to get out here quick. Just tell him it's an emergency. Nick didn't come home that night. I tried to call him at least a dozen times, but he wouldn't answer the phone. I, I called the police and asked them to go check on him, and they told me, don't worry, everything's fine. And I asked them, how do you know that? You didn't even go out there yet. They just kept saying that everything was fine at the base, and I should just go to bed. What time did your husband come home? He didn't get in until 2 o'clock the next afternoon. I was worried sick. He looked so tired, and there was something else, too. Like, he had this blank look in his eyes. I think he was in shock. I asked him what happened, and the way he stared at me made goosebumps come up on my arms. And he said, they told me not to tell anyone. Not even you. Angie's list is now Angie, and we've heard a lot of theories about why. I thought it was an eco-move. Fewer words, less paper. No, it was so you could say it faster. No, it's to be more iconic. Must be a tech thing. But those aren't quite right. It's because now you can compare upfront prices, book a service instantly, and even get your project handled from start to finish. Sounds easy. It is, and it makes us so much more than just a list. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I. Or download the app today. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take. Whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs, or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Is this thing recording, or do I have to, um, oh, yeah, yeah, okay. <clears throat> um, yeah, this is Officer Matthew Golding speaking. It's shortly after 9 p.m. on the of August 2006. I'm standing here with Julian Bridgemore and Louis Delacroix, and, um, as I said, we're standing here outside the Watchtower in National Park. Julian and I were called out to investigate something, um... Something very unusual that was reported by Mr. Delacroix here. Lou, can you tell us what you saw? Unusual? <laughs> yeah, you could say that. <laughs> Mr. Delacroix has requested that we document this 
this investigation with a tape recorder he found in the watchtower. Lewis, can you tell us what you saw this evening? Yes, ma'am, I can. Right around nine o'clock, um, uh, 2100 hours, I seen a ball of light fall from the sky. It came down about a mile from here. It was pretty big. I'd say maybe uh, 20 feet across in diameter. It turned all kinds of different colors as it came down. One sort of just running into the next, you know? It was pulsing and, uh, I don't know how to describe it really. The light was just sort of pulsing, going from green to blue, red, orange, all kinds of colors. I'll go on record right now and tell you something. I have been a fire lookout for a real long time, and I've never seen anything like that. Do you believe in that sort of thing, Mr. Delacroix? UFOs and things of that nature? I believe what I see with my own eyes, and I am telling you, I seen a ball of light come down from the sky. It flew over the trees in a straight, steady path for maybe 200 yards, and then it just dropped out of sight. I'm not saying it's aliens or something, but, well, hell, I don't know. I can only tell you what I saw. Matt, no offense to Lewis here, but I don't think this was much of an emergency. Hold on just a damn minute. I am not a liar, ma'am. I'm telling you the truth. I've known Lou for a long time. If he says something landed out there in the woods, well, I believe he isn't lying to us. Then we'll just say that. We might as well check it out. I am not some crazy wingnut. I saw what I saw. Well, I know you aren't, Lou. Believe me, if it was anyone but you, I'd already be heading back. It's been a long day. I want to come, too. I want to see it. Oh, I don't think that's a good idea. Absolutely not. Come on, I want to see it. I have a camera. Let me come with you. If you fell off the back of the quad or something, I think we could be held liable. No way. We can't do that. Please, I'm begging you over here. Come on! I want to see this thing. I want to take a hundred pictures and show the whole goddamn world. I promise I will not be a pain in your ass and I won't do anything stupid. Uh, look, Lou, I'll be honest here. I don't think we're going to find an actual physical object from outer space in those woods. We'll take you out there, show you that nothing's there, and back to the watchtower you go. He's not supposed to abandon his post at the tower. This is... You know what? He's your responsibility, then. He can ride with you. You are gonna see that I ain't a liar. You're gonna see that for yourself. Mark my words. Nick didn't say much when he got in. He laid down on the couch and fell asleep. I was really worried about him. Right around six o'clock, I took a break from watching over him to go have a smoke, and I saw an unfamiliar vehicle parked a little ways down the street. A big black SUV with tinted windows. I felt like someone was watching me. Made me nervous. When I went back in, Nick was sitting up on the couch. He pointed to the window and said, 
Anthony out there. I knew right away what he was talking about. I told him about the SUV and his face got real pale. He started pacing around the house. He says, they don't want me to tell anyone. Well, I grabbed him by the arm and asked him, tell anyone what, Nick? What happened out there last night? And he just shook his head and whispered in my ear, I can't say anything, they're listening. I felt the hairs raise on the back of my neck. You know, I grabbed a notepad and wrote, who's listening? And he shook his head again and grabbed the pen out of my hand and he wrote, they can see us. And he ran the tap over the notepad in the kitchen sink. He wadded it up in a ball and threw it in the garbage. Did you look for this notepad after your husband's murder? Yes. I searched for it after they took him away. It wasn't there. I dumped the bag out on the kitchen floor and looked through all the garbage, but it just wasn't there. It was gone. Maria, who do you believe was responsible for the death of your husband? The, the real question is, who ordered his execution? Because it was an execution. My husband knew something he wasn't supposed to know. They were worried he would tell someone. That's why he wouldn't say anything. He was afraid they would find out with their surveillance equipment. He was trying to protect me. What do you think would have happened if Nick had told you the truth? I think you know the answer to that. One more death to these people? Our lives don't matter to people like that. Who are you referring to when you say that? Who are they? And what are they trying to hide? I think you already know the answer to that one, too. Shortly after 9 p.m., Matthew Golding, Jillian Bridgemore, and Louis Delacroix left the watchtower on two all-terrain vehicles, following a rough trail that meanders on a northwesterly path through the forest. Before they left, Lewis radioed back to base to advise Nick Fazio that the trio intended to venture out and locate the mysterious object which had descended from the sky. It was the second last transmission sent from the watchtower that evening. something, isn't it? <laughs> That's really something. You guys be careful, Lou. Well, I just want to get some pictures, Nicky. I ain't going to walk up and touch the damn thing. We're not stupid. Listen, Lewis. Jokes aside, if you find what you're looking for out there, don't get too close, you know? Be cautious. You don't know anything about it. You don't know what it is or where it came from. It could be dangerous. I already told you, I am not an idiot. Damn it, this is big, man. This is huge. We are going to be famous. TV talk shows and all that jazz. Reporters. Famous? You get a clear picture of some aliens out there, and I bet we'll all freaking disappear. <laughs> I'm, I mean it, Lou. You guys be careful. We'll be fine. Don't worry about it. Over and out, buddy. We'll talk soon. The time is... Uh, it's 9.24 p.m. We parked the quads on the side of the trail and went into the woods on foot. We are approximately one mile north of the tower, and we can see a light shining through the trees. It's... I don't know what to make of this. Jillian? Uh, I think I should apologize to Lewis over here. 
there's an object in the woods, um, about two or three hundred yards to the west of the trail. I can't see its shape, but it's a brightly lit object, and it seems to be changing colors in a pattern. We're too far away to make out any detail, but this thing, um, it's pretty big. I don't know how Nick didn't see this thing. It's very bright. I told you, I ain't a liar. Well, no one ever called you a liar, we just didn't... Wait. What the hell is that? I can hear something. I can feel it. Like it's... I can feel it too. Can you smell that? There's a weird smell, almost like ozone. I can taste it on my tongue. Oh, okay, okay, let's consider our options here. I am not sure if getting close and taking pictures is such a great idea, Lou. We should keep our distance. Shh. Do you hear that? Something's coming this way. Oh, shit on that. Let's go. Lewis, do not leave my sight, you... L Lewis! Lewis! Wait! We have to go. Come on. Okay, just a second. A massive search operation was quickly organized to locate the missing rangers in the fire lookout. But after nine days, the searchers were forced to throw in the towel. Every acre of the park was carefully combed for any clues that might shed some light on their fate. In the end, all they could find was a small scrap of cloth that may have come from a ranger's uniform, a single button, the tire tracks from their all-terrain vehicles, the tape recorder, and Matthew Golding's 9mm pistol. The scrap of cloth was discovered a few yards outside the burn spot. It was snagged in a low-hanging branch, affirming that at least one of the rangers came very close to the landing site. The button was on the ground nearby, partially melted. It was impossible to determine which of the missing persons these items may have belonged to, but it is almost certain they both came from a ranger's uniform. The tape recorder was laying in the burned vegetation near the edge of the eye. The outer casing of the tape recorder was badly melted, but the cassette inside proved to be largely unscathed. The discovery of the firearm occurred by pure accident. A member of the search team happened to look up at the right time, and she caught sight of a pistol dangling from a tree branch. The branch in question was 79 feet in the air. The firearm was determined to belong to Matthew Golding. Upon closer examination, the searchers made a grisly discovery. There was a crust of blackened organic material attached to the grip, which was eventually identified as being a thick layer of human skin. It appeared that Golding's weapon was torn from his grasp after being heated to searing temperatures. The weapon itself, however, appeared to have sustained only minor damage. The entire event is shrouded in mystery, but the strangest piece of the puzzle is the area known as the Burn Spot. 
The burn spot is a roughly circular patch of land where all the vegetation was seared to a crisp by an unknown source of heat. The trees along the border of the burn spot had been singed all the way up to the uppermost branches on one side, but were largely undamaged on the other side. In the middle of this 40-foot-wide patch of devastation, there was a perfect circle of bleached-out soil that was dubbed the Eye by the search team. The undergrowth located within this area hadn't been scorched, but it was uniformly crushed into the forest floor in a swirling circular pattern. The eye reaches 12 inches deep into the soil, and it measures over 20 feet in diameter. According to the police report, the ground inside the eye remained warm to the touch for over 72 hours. There was a quiet concern among the ranks of the search team that the area might have been irradiated but there was no elevated levels of harmful radiation detected within either the eye or the surrounding burn spot. It has been reported that, even years later, nothing will grow within the burn spot. Wildlife has been observed giving it a very wide berth, including birds and flying insects, who will actively change their flight path to avoid crossing through the airspace above the affected area. Unknown persons were observed taking soil and vegetation samples from the burn spot on the day after the abduction, but the results of any analysis that might have been performed on these samples remains unknown. How could it be possible to burn such a large area of dry undergrowth without sparking a raging wildfire? The entire region was in the grip of a heat wave, and there had been minimal rainfall in the weeks leading up to the incident. In those conditions, a stray ember from a campfire could easily start a devastating inferno. One can only wonder about the nature of an energy field which could accomplish such a feat, and how it might be produced, and for what purpose. No one knows the true answer beyond a select few, an anonymous and faceless cabal that protects its secrets with money, intimidation, and cold-blooded murder. Oh, shit. Shit! Okay. I don't know what time it is. My watch stopped. Radio doesn't work either. Just... Just a lot of static. Lou... He... Lou... He's... He's gone. We lost him. There was a... There was something coming at us. I... I, I don't know. We could hear like a... I don't even know how to describe it. It was a deep hum. I could hear something pushing through the undergrowth, and that humming sound. My head started to hurt. It was hard to breathe. Lou took off in a different direction, and we lost him. He's still out there somewhere. I'm sorry, but I'm leaving right now. There's no way I'm going back out there. We can't leave without him, Joe. Do you know how much? We never should have brought him with us in the first place. Are you out of your goddamn mind? Whatever's out there in the woods, it's beyond us. Way beyond us. Who knows what could happen if it sees us? Look, Jill, I have known Lou for years, and I can't do it. There is no choice. There is a choice. I choose to go home tonight, and you should do the same. 
Whatever or whoever is out there, they might mean us harm and they might not. Sometimes I'll step on a bug by accident, and sometimes I do it on purpose. Either way, that bug is dead. You get what I'm saying? We're still recording here, Jill. I don't give a shit. You can do whatever you want, but I'm out of here. No. Stop right there and drop the key. Hey! What the fuck are you doing pointing your gun at me? Put your weapon on the ground. Bear spray, knife, radio. Put everything on the ground. No! Shut up! Do not talk. Take six big steps backward and turn around with your hands in the air. What are you doing? What the hell is going on here, Matt? If you speak again, I'll kill you. Do you understand? Good. Keep your mouth shut and do as I say. Start walking. Oh, I'm pretty much an expert by now, sure. <laughs> Ask whatever you want. Let's talk about Matthew Golding for a minute. Well, um, I guess people are gonna think this is crazy, but it's all crazy, so, um... We know that Matthew Golding was born in... in 1975. He moved to the state of with his family when he was a teenager, and he started in the park in the fall of 1998. He appeared almost eight years later, on the night of the... of what happened, and that was the last anyone ever saw of him. Are you with me so far? Yes, ma'am. Please continue. Well, a couple of fishermen found a skull in a ravine back in 2011. It was identified as belonging to Matthew Golding. He'd been shot in the back of the head. Now, at first they were estimating the year of his death to be sometime in 2002, but that got changed to 2006 in the report. So, you're suggesting that Matthew died four years before the abduction? How is that possible? His voice can be heard numerous times in the recording. The man you hear in the recording wasn't the real Matthew Golding. He was dead long before then. Mr. Golding was murdered and replaced with a look-alike in 2002. The man on the tape is an imposter. Where would they find someone who could look and act so closely to the real person? And why? It's been documented that Matthew came home for the Christmas holidays every year, and even his own family didn't notice anything off about him. There's been a lot of very strange sightings in that park over the years. Look it up for yourself. It's been going on for at least a hundred years, maybe even longer. I think they've been watching the park for a very long time now, and they'll protect their secret any way they can. Now, there was a letter that Matthew wrote to his parents in March of 2001, and I've seen this letter with my own eyes, where he says he saw a strange light in the sky. He thought it was Venus at first, but it fell from the sky and landed somewhere in the park. That's what he says in the letter. He says, I thought to myself, Venus is falling. So he did see something unusual, and maybe it was more than once. Maybe he told someone about it, and they turned out to be the wrong person. You know? Maybe they were reading his mail. They, they can do that. They can make you disappear, and they can even replace you. They have unlimited money and resources, these people. 
They can do whatever they want. What is the secret they're trying to protect? I know what people think when you say something like this, but I do believe there are other civilizations out there, and they're much more advanced than we are. That's not the secret, though. The secret is they've been coming to our planet for a very long time. They come here for reasons we don't understand, and they do what they do, and there's nothing we can do to stop them. That's what they're trying to hide from the public, you understand. The real secret isn't that we're being, um, interfered with, you know? The secret is that we don't know what they want, and we're helpless to stop them. I have one more question concerning Matthew Golding. Why do you think he recorded himself committing a felony by holding a fellow law enforcement officer hostage? You would think someone in his position would want to get rid of Jillian and Lewis without leaving any evidence behind. Well, he wasn't worried about the tape falling into the wrong hands. He was probably going to send it straight to a lab somewhere for analysis if things had turned out the way he'd planned. He was going to kill Jillian and Lewis, no doubt about it. He wasn't going to let them get out of there alive. It might have been better for them if he had. The final minute of the tape is... absolutely terrifying. I've listened to it a dozen times, and it still makes the hair stand up on the back of my neck. I feel for Jillian and Lewis, but as far as I'm concerned, that murdering son of a bitch got what he deserved, sir. He got exactly what he deserved. There's an opening on the side. The fucking thing, it's changing all the time like a... I mean, it's a circle, then it's, it's like a star. Doesn't stop changing, it's... Oh, fuck. It just opened up. What do you mean? Like a door or something? No, it's a... I don't know, it's not like a door. There's a... Out of the opening. What hurts to look at? I don't know how. Oh, wait a minute. What's that? Shit. What's going on? Talk to me, Lewis. What do you see? Something just came out of there. I can't, I mean, I mean, there's more. There's even more of them. Oh my god, sweet Jesus, the way they move. Calm down. I called the cops, so help us on the way. Just lay low, okay? Stay away from the... They know I'm here. They know I'm talking to you. Can they see you? They can see everything. The imposter who was masquerading as Matthew Goldman led Jillian Bridgemore through the woods for approximately 17 minutes. During that time, no audible communication between them was captured on tape. The disquieting hum that could be heard earlier in the recording reappears, and it grows steadily louder, as if Matthew and his captive were inadvertently drifting closer and closer to the object as they search for Louis Delacroix. At one point, Louis can be heard yelling their names in the background, suggesting he was in close enough proximity to the rangers to be picked up by the cheap microphone in the tape recorder. Although these conclusions are largely speculation, they generate two very puzzling questions. 
How did the imposter not realize he was wandering too close to the landing site? And why didn't he answer Lewis when he was obviously close enough to be heard? It can be speculated that the object in the woods was exerting some kind of temporal disturbance in the immediate area of the landing site, distorting time and space in a way that would confuse the senses. It's possible Lewis was walking almost right beside them, but they were unable to see or perceive each other in any tangible manner. I think it's highly unlikely the agent posing as Matthew would knowingly approach the object, as he would have been well aware of the dangers it posed to any earthly being that might stray too close. I believe he simply became disoriented and wandered in the wrong direction, with disastrous results. Although I grieve the loss of Gillian Bridgemore, I'm afraid I have to agree with Maria Fazio concerning the fate of the murderous imposter. That son of a bitch had it coming. I, I can't see. Stop right there. We have to... We have... Oh, shit. Oh, holy fuck. Oh, my God. The light. I was in the shower when it happened. He was sitting at the table, drinking his coffee. He had the morning newspaper open in front of him. When I, uh, got out of the shower, he was slumped over the table. His, uh... Oh, God, the blood. The newspaper was soaking up his blood. You didn't hear any gunshots? I thought maybe I had heard something, but it wasn't a really loud bang, you know, like the bang from a gunshot. Your guns are very loud. There's there's no way I wouldn't hear two shots over the sound of the running water, not unless the killer was using a suppressor. I've read about those things. It's not like in the movies. They change the sound of the gunshot. Tell me about the encounter you had after the funeral. Well, it was about a week after the funeral, and I was just sort of moping around the house. I wasn't really thinking straight. I was still trying to make some sense of it all, you know? Anyway, so this big guy with a crew cut came knocking on the door that morning. He was wearing dark coveralls and mirrored sunglasses. I thought he was with the power company at first, but then I saw he was holding a flower arrangement and a, and a gift bag. He gave me his big smile when I opened the door, and he said, Sorry to intrude like this, Maria, but they wanted to offer their condolences. I just stared at him like, What the hell is this? You know? I said, Pardon me? Who, who are you? And he handed me the flowers and the gift bag. I said, What's this? Tell me who you are. But he was already walking away. And he got into a cargo van and drove away. And I just stood there. And, and watched him go with my mouth hanging open. And it was so weird, you know? It, it was just really scary. I was shaking all over. What was in the bag? It was my hairbrush. I keep it in the vanity in my bedroom. I had 
just used it the night before. I didn't even know it was gone. They came into your bedroom that night as you slept, and they took your hairbrush to send a message. Is that what you're saying? Yes, that's exactly what I'm saying. It was a message. It... Look, this is how they do it, all right? This is the kind of thing they do. If I told you they broke into my house and stole my brush, well, you'd think I was crazy, wouldn't you? And that's how they do something like this. They want to intimidate you. It was definitely a message. They wanted me to know they can get rid of me anytime they see fit. Locked doors mean nothing to them. If they ever even suspected I had some evidence against them, they get rid of me in a heartbeat. It is widely believed that Louis Delacroix witnessed the abduction of Jillian and the imposter. After witnessing this traumatic event, he was somehow able to find his way back to the watchtower. What follows is the last transmission between Louis and Nicholas Fazio in its entirety. It makes for a very disturbing listening experience, and listener discretion is advised. Something. No, it's 
I, I don't know. It's, it's not like a door. There's... Out of the opening. Oh, it hurts to look at. I, I don't know how. I... Wait a minute. What's that? Oh, shit. What's going on? Talk to me, Lewis. What do you see? Something just came out of there. I can't... I mean... There's more. There's even more of them. Oh, my God. Sweet Jesus, the way they move. Calm down. I called the cops, so help is on the way. Just lay low, okay? Stay away from the... They know I'm here. They know I'm talking to you. Can they see you? They can see everything. Stay with me, Lou. Don't... Don't do anything rash. Just... Step away from the radio and come with us. Right now, please. Turn off the... At this time, there still hasn't been any formal acknowledgement from any authorities at a regional, state, or federal level that would suggest this incident had ever occurred. Maria Fazio continues to strive for the truth behind her husband's murder, and the families of Matthew Golding... Jillian Bridgemore and Louis Delacroix continue to mourn the mysterious loss of their loved ones. They desperately seek closure, but this has been denied to them again and again by everyone from the chief of police to the governor all the way up to the secretary of defense. The truth will probably never be revealed, but someone, somewhere, knows what happened on that night in August of 2006. It is my hope they will eventually find the courage to come forward with the final pieces of this daunting and sinister puzzle. However, I don't believe it will ever happen. Some secrets are simply far too dangerous to be revealed. I'd like to personally thank you, the listeners, for joining me this evening. I would like to end with a blood-chilling anecdote of my own. Before I began working on this documentary, I was largely skeptical of this story. It sounded like a hybrid between a conspiracy theory and an urban legend. However, shortly before I began production on this documentary, I had an encounter that changed my mind entirely. A man came knocking at my door two weeks before production was scheduled to begin. It was a large man with a crew cut, wearing dark coveralls and mirrored sunglasses. When I answered the door, he shoved a cardboard box into my hands, gave me a cryptic smile, and walked away. I yelled, Hey, come back here! But he didn't even turn around. He jumped into a white cargo van with darkly tinted windows and drove off, 
here one moment and gone the next. If I wasn't left standing on my porch with the box in my hands, I would have been tempted to believe it had never happened at all. The encounter was over in a matter of seconds. I wasn't sure if I should even open the box, but I finally gathered enough courage to take a look. There were two items inside. One was a copy of the script for this documentary. At this point, I still haven't even made a printed copy for myself. I was chilled to the bone by this discovery. But the other item was even worse. It was a bullet, and my name had been etched into the casing. The Angie's List You Know and Trust is now Angie, and we're so much more than just a list. We still connect you with top local pros and show you ratings and reviews, but now we also let you compare upfront prices on hundreds of projects and book a service instantly. We can even handle the rest of your project from start to finish. So remember, Angie's List is now Angie, and we're here to get your job done right. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I, or download the app today. I hope you enjoyed Venus is Falling, as written by T.W. Grimm and voiced by Horror Hill host Jason Hill, as well as Chilling Tales for Dark Knight's vocal performers Melissa Medina, Justine Anastasia, and Paul J. McSorley. To find more from T.W. Grimm, visit simplyscarypodcast.com slash Grimm, spelled G-R-I-M, and you'll be redirected to his author profile on our horror fiction website, creepypastastories.com. Jason Hill's performances can also be found right here on our very own network through his podcast, Horror Hill, now in its fourth season. Check it out, subscribe, and leave a kind word or review. Be sure to let him know you heard him here. You won't be sorry that you did. Up next, we've got a second sinister story for you, as written by M.M. Kelly and performed by Nick Goroff and Justine Anastasia. In it, we'll be introduced to a boy whose life circumstances led him to being raised by his great aunt and uncle. It's a tough change for all involved. So when he asks for an old dollhouse they see at a garage sale, his aunt can't bear to say no. It's a well-known fact that houses can come with histories and energies, no matter how big or small. Now... Without further ado, I present to you, Fayhouse. My grand-aunt Mildred absolutely adored yard sales. That woman could haggle a tortoise from its shell. I tagged along a lot because she kept me while my parents were at work. She let me pick random junk, and she was an expert haggler when it came down to something actually worth getting. I could play back the whole day that we got the dollhouse. It was in an older development. All of the houses were tan brick with one floor. No basements and single-car garages with driveways leading to them. We had visited a lot of yard sales in the neighborhood before. My aunt flipped through old records and inspected old dolls. 
I rummaged through their open garage. In the back corner, I found a purple dollhouse, tall and slender, with a black wooden roof and lavender siding. It had three floors, a front and back porch, and was absolutely furnished with tiny furniture that looked like it was fashioned by a master craftsman with bits of sticks and furs. I dragged her over to show her my find. Dollhouses aren't for boys. She sighed at me. Your father will kill me if I buy that for you. I don't have to use dolls in it. She wiggled it around, peering in the little windows, and trying to open the small exterior doors. I watched her inspection, full of hope. I bounced in anticipation. She tried to hold her poker face, but I knew her better than that. Please... I suppose keeping it at my house would be all right. She argued to herself. And it is beautiful. She picked it up and lugged it into the woman manning the cash box. How much? Mm. The lady looked it over, deep in thought. I suppose I'd take $200 for it. My aunt choked on air and gave the woman a side eye that could cut through a steel plate. She sat the house down on the folding table the lady was sitting at and gave me a tap on the shoulder. I followed her back down the driveway to her car. Hold on. The lady shouted down her yard to us. My aunt turned around and tilted her head up in a silent, Yes? I'll take $75 for it. She sighed. I'll give you 40 and not a penny over. My aunt countered. The woman begrudgingly accepted the offer but she seemed a little too happy for someone who just got a small piece of her asking price. She even carried it to the car and carefully buckled it into the back seat. I kept poking and peering in the windows during the ride home. It was absolutely fascinating to me. Once we got it home, Aunt Mildred was equally enthralled with the tiny details of the home. Its craftsmanship topped any dollhouse I'd ever seen. My childish mind thought maybe it was a real home just shrunk down to doll size. We couldn't get it open, though. It didn't bisect. The doors and windows would jiggle but not open. Uncle Wayne prodded and tried to pry the doors open with a flathead screwdriver. You'll mar the detailing, Aunt Mildred moaned. I'm being careful, he replied calmly, squinting and inspecting the small door. You know. What? Mildred asked, trying to look over his shoulder. Well, eh, he mumbled as he started to scrape at the small gap between the door and doorframe, knocking off the old paint. I said don't mar the details. Mildred shrieked. That's what gives it so much character. It's fine, he said dismissively. The door and the frame are welded shut. Dollhouses aren't welded shut, and they certainly aren't metal. Mildred said with a dismissive tone of her own. He pulled a magnet from his toolbox, and it slammed itself to the house with a hollow thunk. And Mildred was not impressed. That doesn't make any sense. Yeah, at least it's probably worth more in scrap than what you paid, Wayne offered. Why would you scrap something that's this beautiful? Well, for starters, it's sealed up, but not much good for anything other than looking at Wade can use his imagination to find more uses for it, she said matter-of-factly. Second of all, Wayne continued unfazed, 
The doll that's at the kitchen table is creepy as all get out. What doll? Mildred and I exclaimed, pushing Wayne out of the way and shoving our eyes up to the small glass windows. Sure enough, sitting at the table was a real thin male doll, just like the house. He had every detail that you could imagine. His clothes were bright and vivid. His face has every detail down to nostrils and teeth. He had a small nose that came to a slightly upward point. Wade? Aunt Mildred called from next to me. Did you notice the doll or the meal at the table before? I shook my head no. I wonder how we missed it. Even now, I know I never saw that doll anywhere in there. During the ride home, he was just there and never left. It should have been a red flag, but instead, it captivated our imaginations. What other secrets were hidden away inside of the purple shell? That night over dinner, we discussed how we could get into it. I thought you were concerned with destroying a lovely piece of craftsmanship, Wayne pointed out between forks of Gilbasa. But think of the possibilities. My aunt said dreamily. It could even have money inside. I mused with ideas of video games and pizza. I guess if I used a hand tool with a fine grinding wheel, it wouldn't be a big deal to work the welds away. Wayne conceded, a little curious himself. After dinner... We went to inspect it again, and for Wayne to form a plan of attack. Busting open the front door wasn't worth the effort. It was too small. Pulling and tugging didn't reveal any obvious weak points. It was built like a brick house. Then I noticed two of the corners were different from the other two. One was slightly bulbous, and the other much flatter than the other two. A hinge and a welded edge. Wayne went through multiple grinding wheels that night on his little hand tool. In the morning, I'll run to the hardware store and get something sturdier, he commented as he gave up for the night. That night, as I was drifting off, a sickly emerald light diffused out of the little windows. A man's silhouette projected out of the windows like an old movie projector. I crept out of bed and peered into the windows. I started to gasp, but held my breath and covered my mouth. The doll was walking around. He shuffled weakly through the kitchenette, Digging through cabinets, he flipped through tiny books, and his shoulders heaved with the boredom of familiarity. He looked up from his book, and our eyes met. He approached the window with the caution of a sick animal. The palm he pressed to the tiny glass pane was wrinkly up close. I put my pointer finger up to his hand in solidarity. His jaws moved like he was speaking, but his words were muted. In an attempt to hear, I leaned in close and held my breath. Silent words fell upon deaf ears. I must have fallen asleep shortly after that. It frankly felt like a dream. I still told Aunt Mildred after I woke up considerably later than usual. You must have been worn out. She exclaimed as my groggy body navigated the staircase. I watched the dollhouse a lot, I admitted. Did you see anything good at least? She asked, her voice tinged with annoyance. There's this weird green light, and I saw the doll moving around. She put her hand to my forehead and waited a moment. Hmm, no fever. She thought aloud. I think you dreamed more than you watched, dear. He was trying to talk to me, but he couldn't. I insisted. He even put his hand up to the window, and I put my finger on it. Let's get you some breakfast. 
she said as she ushered me into the kitchen. When Uncle Wayne gets back and breaks through the welds, you'll see it's just a plain old doll. The weld on the edge went. Then we found more along the roof line. They had even welded the seam on the underside. We sanded the paint on the hinge away and sprayed it gently with lubricant. Mildred took one corner while Wayne took the other. As they pulled and grunted, it cracked and slid open with a screech of metal on metal. A dim green light flashed as an earthy musk rolled out of the house. The doll was gone. Every tiny cabinet worked. Every drawer. The books even had tiny illegible scrawlings on each page. It was truly a masterpiece. I played with it using every toy I owned. My aunt concluded that the doll must have been some kind of optical illusion with the windows. I bought it back then. My adolescent mind could not yet think critically. It sounded good and that was good enough. I stayed up that night. I tried to sleep, but I had to know if I was crazy. No green light came from the dollhouse. So I nestled myself between the open halves of the dollhouse and inspected every inch. There was no ambulatory doll either. I checked it all again, hoping to find any evidence that he had been there. There was a groan behind me, like a tree branch bowing under the weight of a sudden wet snow. I turned, thinking the noise was the door to the guest room. The figure loomed and greeted me with a smile. My eyes were so close to its teeth that I could see rings. One of the front teeth had a wood knot dead center. It was the doll, but now he was the size of a man. Dusty red locks of yarn hung from his head. His body creaked like an old wooden floor as he raised a hushing finger to his lips. You freed me, eh? All I could do was shrug, trying to find any words, questions, answers, a screech. Before I could, he crumpled into the floor and was gone without a trace. My aunt came into my bewildered face. The, the, the doll! I stammered. He was big! What are you talking about? She asked incredulously. I stumbled over my words incoherently, desperately trying to explain the doll was real. No. She interrupted my babble. You need to go to sleep. It was all a bad dream. Aunt Mildred put me back in bed with a hug and a kiss. I tried to fend off the sleep, but my eyelids grew heavier and heavier. I tried to hold them open as I heard the low, heavy groan of flexing wood. The tall man leaned over my bed. The noises that came from his mouth were gibberish to my ears, but his expression was joyous. When I woke up, there was an earthy musk around me. It was as if I had been out rolling in wood chips and soil. The smell stalked me, persisting through showers. The overchlorinated swimming pools would be frequented in the summer, and multiple romps through streams. The whole summer, it felt like I had someone with me at all times. Sinister whispers filled any void of silence that I could get. I was old enough to know that if I told them I heard voices, they wouldn't react kindly. The closer I got to the woods, the louder the whispers were. What do you desire? It whispered in my ears I tried to sleep, head sandwiched between pillows. From then on, it was a clear voice. Sometimes other noises nearly drowned it out. The inflection changed from time to time, as did the content. From a question to a taunt, 
Sometimes I would even catch it laughing a hearty belly laugh at an unheard joke. I tried to ignore it. Voices had to come from somewhere, and this one certainly lacked a body. Bitcoin that you need, it whispered into the room where I was playing in a voice so light. If anyone else had been near, it would have been imperceivable. I steeled myself against acknowledging it, the sound of its voice twisting my guts into cramped ropes. I busied myself with Lagos. After a time without a response, it tried again. Trinkets? Baubles? My abstinence from the conversation forced it to dig deeper. Is it wine you thirst for? The finest tobacco to fill your lungs. Even to my young mind, the offer of alcohol and tobacco was so absurd that I couldn't help but laugh a little. That minute acknowledgement only encouraged it. Will it be luck with the women folk? What is your fancy to be the desire of men? It sneered with devious delight. As a 35-year-old man, I can still feel how my cheeks burned at the awkward, too personal inquiry. Sometimes I wonder what would have happened if I'd chosen to be lucky with love. Still, I remained silent. The room was silent like it was digging deeper, searching for an offer I couldn't refuse. I decided to go find Aunt Mildred. The voice left me alone and other people were nearby. To my surprise, the playroom door was closed. I absolutely never closed the door behind me, especially if I was going to be in the room. The familiar cold brass of the doorknob was missing. The door and knob were all one piece of wood. Perhaps an exit would suit you, friend. The voice said, hopefully. Determined to ignore it, I jerked and shook the doorknob to no avail. As if it were solid with a frame and wall, it didn't bow, shake, or rattle. I know you can hear me, lad. It said with a chuckle. I'd like to reward you for getting me out of that forsaken prison. I squeezed my eyes tight and took a breath. I turned and stomped across the room in frustration. It took all of my might, but the old wood-framed window scooted up, the paint in the groove giving its all to thwart me. Clever you are, it exclaimed. But you laughed at my joke, and I know you saw me in that playhouse. I paused halfway through the window. Chilled and dumbfounded in the hot summer air. Was there some kind of ghost? Or worse yet, demon? Trapped in that old dollhouse. Was that why the woman was getting rid of it? I knew I had to drag Aunt Mildred into this. The fall from the window onto the wooden porch was pretty much non-existent. I circled around through the front door and found my aunt sitting at the dining room table. Annie M. I called with an uneasy crack of my voice. Are ghosts real? Mildred was certainly a third grandmother, and came close to being a second parent to me in her own right. She knew something was amiss. I think they're just stories. She said with a squint and wrinkle of her brow. Just for fun. Some people like scary things. I bit my lip and stared at the floor, a lump in my throat stopping me from elaborating. Mildred read that, too. They could be, though. She said with fake uncertainty. There are all kinds of things we have a hard time understanding. 
Did you see a television program about a ghost? Well, I was playing with the dollhouse and- Don't do it. The voice growled. I felt the collar drain from my cheeks, and the knot in my stomach tighten. Well, you were playing with the dollhouse and... Mildred probed, the furrows on her brow growing deeper. Mildred's gentle tone and demeanor comforted me like a warm blanket in frigid winter. Before Wayne opened it, I was looking inside and there was... Boy! The voice snapped. Do not speak of me. You will pay a steeper price than your tiny mind can comprehend. I promise you that. The voice echoed in my mind. Unimaginably gory and grotesque possibilities. Flashing through my head. Channels being flipped on a television. My stomach cramped. And I doubled over. Dry heaving a payload that wouldn't come. And Mildred's puzzled eyes gave me strength. I crept towards her and whispered as if he couldn't hear. Can't you hear him? Hear who, baby? The wooden man from the dollhouse. I whispered, the mere phrase lingering on my taste buds like an infection. You mean that old wooden doll that was locked inside? I think he was living there. I said, do not speak of me. The voice growled. I clammed up and cowered in the protective embrace of my still-puzzled aunt. She shushed me and rubbed my back. We can get rid of that doll if it's bothering you. She suggested. She walked me to the playroom without saying a word. The door opened like it was brand new. The window I escaped through was closed and latched. Alone on the table sat the dollhouse, open to the hinge with its contents on display. Much to my shock, the furniture of every little room was empty. Where, where, where did he go? I stammered. He should have been in the kitchen, sitting at the table. I'm sure you just misplaced it. Mildred assured me, with her hand on my shoulder. We'll find it and donate it. But then it'll be mean to another kid. I blurted. Words cannot convey the weight that was lifted by vomiting that simple sentence to another human being. Even as a kid, I knew she didn't believe me. Mildred was looking around uncomfortably, looking for the right words, scrounging for the root of the thought that an inanimate doll could be anything other than a doll. The doll is being mean to you, she clarified. I guess he mostly bugs me, but he locked me in the playroom just now, and I had to climb out of the window and- The playroom door is wide open right now, sweetie, she said, pointing over my shoulder at the ajar door. I stammered trying to make sense of it out loud. I think you'll feel better after a nap. She assured me. No, I'm not tired. The door wouldn't even wiggle. I protested. Let's park those shoes, and you'll feel better after you wake up. I promise. I begrudgingly let her walk me into her sewing room and laid down for a nap on the bottom bunk. She closed the door to a sliver. I curled up under the heavy handmade quilt and settled into the soft mattress and welcoming pillow. Every time my eyelids grew heavy and started to shut, the sounds of a silent house settling jarred me back awake. I wanted to believe Mildred, and I tried my damnedest to ignore the creaking that neared the cracked door. I stared at the sliver of light, waiting for a body to block the light coming in. No one came through the door, but the next creak was in the walls and ceiling of the room. I clutched the quilt, 
and tried to force myself to sleep to avoid it. The wooden bed frame let out a long, low-pitched creak that jarred my eyes open while leaving my body paralyzed in bed. Hi. So how about that favor I was offering you? The voice asked calmly, its words quiet, yet seemingly vibrating the bed frame. I squeezed my eyes shut tight and tried to tune it out. Not so talkative without your ain'tin. Aye. I can see that being such a twerp. A hard wooden arm stopped me from rolling off of the bed and making a run for it. My attempt to scream was muffled by a smooth wooden hand over my mouth. An oblong shape stretched from the wooden struts that supported the upper bunk. The tighter the grain stretched, the more pronounced its facial contours and topography became. A pine needle mustache brushed against my nose as he spoke. What, my dear boy, do you desire? He demanded in a low tone that smelled of fresh sawdust. I shook my head back and forth and tried to roll away again. This time, the resistance was met with a hard hand to my small throat. I suppose that man will be suitable too, he mused. I know what he wants, but it won't be good for you. He's a nasty thing, really. I stopped and stared into his white, empty eyes. Wayne? I whispered, baffled by his words. He grinned, his mouth full of dark mahogany teeth. <laughs> is that his name? You don't know about his... hobbies? Keith. The bargaining felt more like swindling, but the devious prodding about Wayne felt honest for some reason. He always came across as weird to me. Did he hate me? Did he hate Mildred? I could ask for anything? I whispered into his hand. I... to be completely free... We need an exchange, he said as he slid his hand away from my mouth. An exchange? You get something, and I get something. Did you get your part already? Oh, don't worry your little head about me. We can shore that up later. I want this to be a good deal for you. His affect was calm but his presence felt predatory. I hoped and prayed someone would find me. My eyes wandered over to the sliver of light that cut through the room, through the cracked door. A body interrupted the light, and hope must have filled my eyes. I will not be interrupted! The man from the dollhouse roared, sharply swinging his arm, palm from my mouth towards the door. The door landed in the frame with enough force to shake the entire house. Muffled yelling and pounding at the unwavering door crept through the walls. As he glared down at me, he released my neck and used both hands to pull his form forth from the wood. He groaned as the wood cracked and creaked as the grain stretched. His legs and torso began to emerge from seemingly nothing. I rolled off of the bed and under Mildred's sewing table. There's no way to hide, lad, he moaned as he continued to substantiate his body. We're going to shore this up. I have centuries of imprisonment to make up for. 
we could see each other. His eyes burned a dark yellow, and he grinned. I rummaged through the storage compartment and hid an old black pair of scissors that she kept. I prayed for the first time in my life. I prayed with my heart and desperation that he didn't see my only chance to defend myself. I curled in as far under the table as I could, and I waited and waited, a white-knuckle grip above the finger holes, and nestled between my body and the wall. My heart stopped momentarily when his hand hit the floor. The other hand slowly followed, slow and deliberate. The gravity and intention behind his stiff and purposeful movements acted as a series of red flags and alarms to vacate. I gripped the old, bumpy scissors so tight my hand shook. It took him two steps to get from the bed to the sewing table. My heart went from pounding in my ears to barely moving. I held my breath and steeled my resolve to kill if he came for me. The room was silent, except for the rare thump of my heart. I stared at his bare feet, striped with a grain of the wood, crowned by a nail colored a yellow I've only seen from pus. Time stood still. I was hyper-focused on the small opening he could come through. He didn't wiggle or fidget. The legs were as still as table legs. My focus was shattered by the soft sound of a single twig snapping underfoot behind me. I jerked around, and his face was shoved against mine, protruding from the wood panel. I tried to scoot back into the room, but his legs stood strong like stone pillars. He howled a triumphant laugh before taunting. Ah, nowhere to run. Shall we speak business now? I had to do it. I silently psyched myself up. I slammed the black-bladed scissors into his left eye. The noise he made was somewhere in the intersection of a laugh, scream, and an enraged roar. His wooden face split into several places, radiating out from the wound, and a dull green light filled the cubby, leaking from the voids. His hands burst from his sides of the sewing desk, and I started kicking at his painted face as hard and as fast as I could, trying to escape the prison his legs had formed. My haphazard kicks shoved the scissors further in. His knees buckled, and I scooted across the old napped carpet and into the room. Suddenly, I could hear Wayne and Mildred banging on the door, and it was starting to wiggle and flex against their force now. The wooden man was still in pursuit, his pained moans filling the room as he dragged his body from under the sewing table. I scrambled to my feet and ran for the door. I twisted the lock on the knob. Wayne and Mildred spilled in. They started to give me the what for, but then their words were silenced by the sight of the monstrosity on the floor, with scissors hanging out of its face. Is that the wooden man? Mildred asked quietly. I nodded, sheltering behind her. Yes, I told you he was real. You'll never be rid of me until you make that deal, boy. He creaked, the strange lime-colored light leaking from his mouth as it moved. Wayne, get the dollhouse. Mildred quietly commanded. It can go out the way it came. He ran for it. No questions or second-guessing. Mildred stood above the thing as it tried to claw its way towards me. She shoved the scissors in until the handles hugged his eye socket and scowled at him with disapproval. Wayne stumbled back in with the heavy playhouse. Mildred sharply pointed at the space in the front of the wooden man, and he threw it down with a thunk 
Get back in your cage. She growled. The cold iron being near him seemed to take more of his spunk away from him. But he still laughed. There's not a chance you're getting me back in that prison, you hag. Mildred went to kick the scissors again, but found his hand gripping her ankle midair. Her expression went from surprise to wailing in pain as the crunch of bone filled the room. Arms and legs sprouted from his torso, like a centipede, and he scuttled towards me, letting Mildred fall towards the floor. Wayne charged in, but one of the arms jutted out and snagged his neck, leaving him swinging like a ragdoll. His mouth smelled like rotting wood and carcass this time. This is a last chance. He growled his amusement at a distant memory. Either I get what I need, or your precious family will perish in this room, and I haunt you until the end of your days. What do you need? I stammered. Your soul has to replace mine for the sake of that forsaken box you cut open. But you're out of it. You're free to go. I pleaded, tears burning my young eyes. I... I am outside of it, but alas, I am still bound to it by magic. I cannot interfere. You get what you want. Then, per the ancient written lore of my people, I may harvest your soul and be free. You're saving two people you love, and helping a stranger just by spending some time in a playhouse. Maybe they could even find someone to replace you one day. My breathing spiraled out of control. My aunt was trying to get up but was wheezing with pain. My uncle hung in the air, clawing and fighting to get free, while fruitlessly gasping for air. Then, a moment of clarity. A hole in the game. I can have anything? I asked, coughing up snot. His good eye lit up. The light from his wounds and mouth burned brighter. Absolutely. No questions asked. You even get to enjoy it for a bit before I take what is mine. I want you back in the playhouse. He was infuriated. He tried to lunge at me, but the thick green light left his body in a smoky cloud. It sucked into the dollhouse like steam into the vent above the stove. Wayne was fine, if not terrified and bruised on his neck. He started to go call an ambulance. But Mildred stopped him. Weld it shut first. She ordered with no uncertainty. I can wait. He dragged the dollhouse back to the garage, the windows all obscured by the green, glowing mist. He welded the back along the broken beads and welded the hinges into solid pieces. After Mildred's leg was set and in a cast, we rode with him to a new development. They were building nearby. The entire ride... The wooden man banged on the doors and windows of his prison, cursing and threatening us. Wayne buried his prison in a plot that was measured out and had forms set for concrete. We drove by the next morning to see a concrete truck pouring a new foundation over him.
I hope you enjoyed Fay House, as written by M.M. Kelly and voiced by Nick Goroff and Justine Anastasia. Voice actor and 2016 Evil Idol champion Nick Goroff's talents can be found on our very own Chilling Tales for Dark Nights YouTube channel, as well as on past episodes of the Simply Scary podcast. You can also join Nick on his YouTube channel, Wizard of Cause. If you do drop by, don't forget to let him know you heard him here on this show. Paul J. McSorley's talents can also be found on our very own Chilling Tales for Dark Nights YouTube channel as well as episodes of the Simply Scary podcast. You can also find more of Paul's work by visiting Audible and checking out his many audiobooks. Just go to audible.com and type Paul J. McSorley into the search bar. That's Paul J. McSorley, M-C-S-O-R-L-E-Y. You'll be glad you did. And after dropping by... Don't forget to let him know you heard him here on this show. As a reminder, you can hear more of Justine Anastasia right here on our official YouTube channel. She also has written for the show as well as been one of the judges for the 2019 Evil Idol voice acting competition. If you check her out, be sure to give her performances a thumbs up, leave a kind word, and tell her you heard her here on this program and that Steve sent you. It would mean a lot to me. To find more of author M.M. Kelly, visit simplyscarypodcast.com slash Kelly, spelled K-E-L-L-E-Y, and you'll be redirected to his author profile on creepypastastories.com. Now, our weekly descent into the depths has just about come to a close. But before we go... I'd like to take a moment to thank you for joining us for tonight's episode and remind you to take a moment to stop by our iTunes page and leave Chilling Tales for Dark Nights a five-star review and a kind word. And follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram if you haven't already. And of course, subscribe to us on YouTube, where you can find an archive of our work going back to 2012. And consider signing up as a patron at our website, ChillingTalesForDarkNights.com, to show your support and get all of our content ad-free. I'm your host, Steve Taylor, and it's been a pleasure. Tune in again next week when we once again turn off the lights and turn on the dark. Sweet dreams, listener. Sweet dreams. <laughs>
you can live out your MasterChef dreams. When you find a professional on Angie to tackle your dream kitchen remodel. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Inside to outside, repairs to renovations. Get started on the Angie app or visit Angie.com today. You can do this when you Angie that. Angie's list is now Angie, and we've heard a lot of theories about why. I thought it was an eco-move. Fewer words, less paper. No, it was so you could say it faster. No, it's to be more iconic. Must be a tech thing. But those aren't quite right. It's because now you can compare upfront prices, book a service instantly, and even get your project handled from start to finish. Sounds easy. It is. And it makes us so much more than just a list. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I. Or download the app today.